You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, have you ever been so mad that you would do a running cannonball into a crowd of people? Not necessarily to get at, at the, the person that you are angry with, but uh, to get at a friend of theirs. Just an associate. You said running cannonball? So if I did like a, like a, from a standing position, that doesn't count? No, run it. Well, first you got to hop over like a five-foot fence. Okay. And then kind of running cannonball uh, into the crowd. Honestly, I don't know if my cardio is good enough for all of that. Now, see, since I come come at this from the perspective of a 40-year-old father of three, when I see someone do a running cannonball off a four-foot stage onto a concrete floor when they don't have any shoes on, I think, oh, no, your ankles! Yeah. Like, I think... I think we're headed for a shattered ankle. Yeah. But I'm not a 30-year-old uh, world-class athlete who just got done going 18 minutes with Conor McGregor. I, I totally get what you're saying, though, because when I saw the, the picture of where it's like the screen grab of Nurmagomedov in the air, and I'm realizing, okay, that's a guy who made that jump without even caring how he was going to land. And that uh, you know that is impressive in a way, because for me, I would have been like, I'm really mad but also, like, let me get some shoes on. You know what? Let me take the stairs down, and I can still be mad when I get there. I don't, I don't need to jump off the, the platform in the air like that. Twist a knee. Roll an ankle. I got stuff to do, man. So, Ben, uh, we've got an unusual situation this week, to say the least. Yeah. We're coming off UFC 229. Uh, probably going to be the biggest MMA card of the year. Uh, the fights themselves, I think, were pretty tremendous. And then, of course, we end with, uh, as they would refer to it on the BBC, a Malay. A Malay. There. That is the how end. they referred to it. I was listening to the BBC driving right over. For one thing, sign that you did have the biggest MMA card of the year, the fact that they're even talking about it on the BBC radio. But then also, they can't help but make the entire story about the Malay. Yeah, so uh, here's what we're going to do for this week's Co-Main Event podcast. As you might imagine, we got a crush of mail from people basically going at every aspect of the Conor McGregor, Habib Nurmagomedov fight slash feud slash brawl. There's a lot to unpack, as they would say in a lit class. There is a lot to unpack. So we are going to do kind of like a curated, all questions considered episode of the podcast today. We are going to talk about the fight. We're going to talk about the brawl. We're going to talk about uh, where we all go from here and then... You know, Lord Willen and the Creek Don't Rise. We'll have some time at the end where we can talk about other odds and ends from the UFC 229 card because Tony Ferguson and Anthony Pettis went out there and had a fucking crackerjack. Yeah, we can't ignore that. Through two full rounds. Uh, there were some standout performers. And also, not to uh, get too far ahead of ourselves here, but we got uh, Fedor Emelianenko versus Chael Sonnen. Coming up this weekend in Bellator. That's this weekend? I believe so. Isn't it October 13th? Is that when that's going down? Maybe. Get on the uh, blower there and figure this out. I'll get on the blower. Don't uh, you worry. 
So we'll, we'll clean that up a little bit, you know, as we go, but we're going to be, uh, we're going to use listener mail as our guide here this week. Uh, maybe next week we'll have an announcement about the CME book club where, uh, I think we're all going to read the sisters brothers. So maybe next week we'll set a date for that. Uh, do you want to tell the kids about the Patreon before we move on, before we get into these questions? Yeah, I'll tell the kids about the Patreon where they can get down with patreon.com slash co-main event. You can see the live stream of this podcast, a bunch of other additional content, such as the Brunch of Champions weigh-in show we just did on Friday. Also, everybody who's been down with this show knows we're on a push for 900 patrons, at which point Chad will be honor-bound to participate in the Day of Reckoning Affliction Drinking Challenge. You know where we're at right now? Where are we? We picked up a few. We're at 748. But since we're still short of 900, you know what's going to happen now? I do know what's going to happen. As part of the pledge drive, I, instead of doing the thing where on public radio, they just keep talking to you about it over and over. I'm not going to keep talking about it over and over. But at one point during every show, as part of this pledge drive, I will hit you with a fact from the bio page on IMDb of one Channing Tatum. Yeah. Are you ready for this week's Channing Tatum fact? We're getting Channing Tatum trivia every week until we get to 900. Is that that's what I am to understand? That is correct. It's like I'm walking through hell. Yeah. Okay, what is it? Hit me with it. He auditioned for the role of Gambit in X-Men The Last Stand before the role was eliminated. But he will portray him in forthcoming film Gambit, due out in 2020. So he got the part, eventually. Got the part. Wow. Well, good for him. Yeah. Good for your boy Chan. Says something about, I don't know, never giving up or something? Something like that? Go to the Patreon to sign up. Patreon slash co-main event. Uh, You can also hit us with your emails if you have reactions, concerns, stuff that you want to air to the podcast. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss. On all the days that we're not recording the podcast, stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is going through a lot of changes. I would say changes for the better. It's coming of age, you yeah. might even say. So, Had the audio extra in the newsletters recently. People seem right. to really enjoy that. Uh, so yeah, sign up for that Breakfast of Champions newsletter over there at Co-Main Event. Aside from next week setting a date for the the upcoming book club, we are also going to lay out some Patreon rewards. Yeah, we got doing that. Got some good rewards coming up, and I I got some ideas. Yeah, if you don't get in now, you might miss out on the rewards. You might join the Patreon after the rewards have already gone out. All that said, Ben, let's jump in here to some talk about the UFC 229 main event. Uh, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody when I say that the thing we got the fewest emails about was the actual fight between Habib Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor. But, I mean, we're we're running an MMA podcast here. So let's spend some time talking about the fight itself. Uh, We broke this thing down at length in the uh, Brunch of Champions Friday morning live stream event that went down while they were having the actual weigh-ins. Ate some snacks, talked some fights. It was interesting to see it actually happen in uh, in real life because when the when you first announce the matchup, Habib Nurmagomedov by, versus Conor McGregor, my instant reaction to that is that's a nightmare matchup for Conor McGregor. And then we had you know weeks and months of analysis to kind of talk ourselves out of that initial take. Right. And by Friday morning, when we did the brunch of champions, I was like, I picked. Habib Nurmagomedov by third round TKO for Bleacher Report, but I felt 
unsure of it after having taken in all of this expert analysis. I was like, Nurmagomedov is going to have to do a bunch of stuff where he goes away from his tendencies. He's going to have to fight a really smart fight, like a technically superior fight. I think Conor McGregor has a real chance to win this. Come Saturday night, we watch the fight. No, it turns out that the thing we thought months ago was probably the right one. That this matchup, stylistically, is a nightmare for the stand-up-oriented Conor McGregor. You're saying go with your gut is what we should learn here? Maybe not every time, but this time I just no, thought it was the... weird that like we kind of we came full circle in terms of like uh, what we originally thought about this fight probably being the correct take. No, I, I agree with you. Go with your gut. Let's go to the casino right now. 21 red. It just came to me. I don't know what. Let's go. 21 red. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds like a great idea. How about this? How about this? You give me your money uh, and I'll just go. I'll put, I'll put our money together. So then when it hits, the payday will be that much better. That sounds great. Why don't you uh, head out and I'll meet you there. If I don't show up right away, don't worry about it. Just keep waiting. See, you're doing it. You're it's, second guessing yourself. It's going to be I a thought while. you learned a lesson. Do you want to talk about this fight? Or yeah. are you just going to sit over there and make your jokes? Listen, you know I want to talk about this fight. Okay. Especially because, to me, the thing that we talked about beforehand was... Is Conor McGregor going to be able to endure a couple rounds of the meat grinder and get up and still have the pop that makes that left hand like a magic touch? And the answer was no. No. You could see it on his face. He did not have that anymore. And even when, you know, in the third round, I think the third round was the first round Khabib has lost, right, in the UFC? According to some. Yeah. Well, on the scorecards. Oh, the, the, like the he actually lost the. Yeah. Uh, Conor McGregor won that round on the scorecards. Uh, and. Even then, that was his best chance when Habib consented to stand with him more often. But by that point, you could see he didn't have that one-punch power anymore. He was, you know, landed a little bit to the body. He was able to kind of get comfortable in there and land some shots. But by then, you could see there was not a lot of fear on the other side. It wasn't like Habib was worried about standing there opposite him. He knew once he had gotten past that, that first round, that first, you know, taking him down a couple times, worked on him a little bit, that he's just not as dangerous there. That, to me, seems like it's going to be a, a blueprint for other people. It does seem like we have the blueprint now, especially since, you know, we talked about leading up to this fight uh, that Conor McGregor gets tired. We've seen that in all of his fights that uh, make him tired, make him out of the make that get out of the first or second round. Uh, we really saw the lessening of his effectiveness here after Habib Nurmagomedov was able to get into his game plan throughout the first, uh, you know, five or ten minutes of this fight. Uh did this look like the same Conor McGregor to you? You know, we talked about how this was a dangerous fight for Conor to take coming in off a two-year layoff. We hadn't seen him since UFC 205 when he beat Eddie Alvarez for the 155-pound title. Um, I thought that he looked very athletic. Like, early on, his takedown defense was was pretty good. Uh, not many people are going to be able to withstand the onslaught of Habib Nurmagomedov's takedowns, especially when he gets you up against the fence. But to me, like, this didn't necessarily look like the same guy who was just so uh, overwhelming against Eddie Alvarez. Uh, you know, even during the second round and then on to the third round when we had some extended periods on the feet, uh, Habib was able to weather th those exchanges and, like, arguably got the better of a lot of those exchanges. Dropped Conor McGregor to the canvas with a right hand at one point, which, by the way, I thought was uh, totally Randy Couture style, where you get the guy so worried about your takedowns that then you, you were able to take a right hand out of your back pocket. Yeah, see, that's exactly what I was going to say, is that, uh, that that effectiveness in the striking game came as a direct result of his effectiveness in the wrestling. And one of the things that we talked about on the, the, the Brunch of Champions show on Friday was... 
will he be able to take Conor McGregor down out in space? Does he have to get him against the fence? And that first takedown was out in the middle of the cage, and it looked like that was Conor McGregor's best chance to kind of shut one down early and put a little doubt in uh, Nurmagomedov's mind about you know whether he's going to be able to get it where he wants it. And at first, he kind of stopped the initial takedown, and then he got sucked down into that game. And it, like once then he was able to start moving him back toward the fence with regularity, then it was all over. Like You could, just couldn't really do much about it at that point. All right, let's start here with this question from Jim of the North. He writes, Okay. So ignoring the after- aftermath disgrace just for a minute or two, can we comment on how impressive the quote-unquote weaker aspects of both fighters' games were in the main event? Connor's takedown defense was damn impressive, and I'm certain no one thought Habib would drop him with the right hand. It just shows how good they are uh, that they could counter each other's strengths with their supposed weaknesses. You may now resume talking about the bit no one wants to talk about. Uh, this is actually a pretty good question because, you know, as everyone knew leading up to this fight, it was sort of like a classic matchup of styles, and it was going to be all about who was going to be able to impose their particular style on the other guy for the longest time. And obviously now that it's that it's all said and done, we know that it was Habib Nurmagomedov's grappling and uh, top control and ground and pound and ultimately submission game that won the day. But like we just said a minute ago, like Conor McGregor didn't look terrible in the uh, in the with his takedown defense. You could see how McGregor would be confident against a lot of grapplers. Yeah, he looked pretty damn hard to take down. Uh, And also like after we spent a long time kind of hemming and hawing and wringing our hands about how Habib Nurmagomedov was going to look like a novice on the feet, uh, he did okay. Like, he definitely stayed out of danger. He definitely landed some shots on the feet, and those punches that Conor McGregor was able to land didn't didn't affect him in the slightest. No. Well, uh, I looked at the stats because I was kind of curious. Uh, Habib went 3-7 of seven on takedowns, which seems like, just in my memory, that seems worse than how I remembered. I I, yeah. I I seem to remember him getting more takedowns than that. Yeah, but I then, mean, but those, that's all he needs, though. Right. Really, and like, see, that's he the gets thing. those takedowns. He he doesn't stop working, well, and the, you're not going to get up. Well, people do get up from him sometimes, but even then, his style is such that even when you get up, he's still glued to you, yeah. and he's still ma- he's still making you work. He he's just weighing on you when you get up and so in a way trying to get up yourself uh and get back to your feet against him probably wears you out just as much as staying down there and having to work with him on top of you because you know the entire takedown game for him is built on get you up against the fence connect his hands and once he connects his hands you're not getting them apart and that's he wherever you go, he's on you, and that's what we've seen from him in the past. That he's not the guy where he's going to get necessarily every single takedown, but he's going to go for a whole lot of them. And once he's in there, once he's closed that range, he's there, and you can't really get rid of him. And that's it seems like it, I'm sure it wears down on people physically, but it also wears down on you mentally when you, the guy is just in your face and you you feel like you don't ever get a second to breathe. What about Conor McGregor tapping out to the uh, I guess neck crank face crush? Like, choke that was not really underneath the chin, basically, like, the forearm across the face. When he tapped out to Nate Diaz in the uh, rear naked choke in their first fight, we talked briefly, I think it was one of the, uh, you know, one of the talking points moving away from that fight was how quickly Conor McGregor tapped out to that rear naked choke. Did you get the same sense from the face crank? Like, that he was kind of, like waiting for it in to a certain degree a little bit i mean it's easy to armchair quarterback those kind of things since you don't know how it feels i'm sure it fucking hurts like a bastard the thing that surprised me 
and it was similar to the Nate Diaz thing, is that you never really see him fight the hands as soon as Nurmagomedov gets that choke on. He never is reaching up for the hands to try to remove that choke. You know, he's he's reaching up the, the forearm where you're not really going to do anything. You know, you got to break that grip and start to fight the hands if you're going to escape from that choke. And it was the same. I mean, this one seemed a little bit different with the Nate Diaz one by that point. By the time he even went for a takedown on Nate Diaz, it seemed like he was exhausted and kind of mentally defeated. And this one, the way Nurmagomedov even gets to that position is by doing that thing that he's so good at where he gets a little bit ahead of you in the grappling game and to where you're trying to catch up. And the more you try to catch up, the further ahead he gets. And that he did a great job of that to even get on Conor McGregor's back in the first place. And then he latches on that, that you know, jaw crush, neck crank, and I don't know, we can say like, oh, you know, you should have done this, you should have done that, or you, you should have just sat there and let him crush you some more. But I don't know exactly what that accomplishes. By the time you get to that point, you're already in some, some deep shit. My expert analysis here is that Habib Nurmagomedov is strong. Yeah. Very I think strong. So. I, I agree. Concur. Uh, Concur on the strength assessment. The strength. All right, this question from Chris Wade. He writes, I'm curious to hear what Chad uh, thinks about dirty moves that Conor McGregor did. McGregor has committed more fouls than an NBA player. Uh, And then he lists them. Number one, hooking the glove. Number two, pulling the shorts. Number three, feet in the cage. Number four, knee to the face on the ground and not even a warning. What a joke. Okay, that one was was pretty pretty noticeable. Yeah. And it seemed like that one was kind of the old Frank Shamrock special. Like, you're on bottom on the ground you throw up that knee to the head and who knows maybe you get lucky i mean maybe the referee stops it just to yell at you and you get a break uh maybe the referee even commits the blunder of trying to punish you and standing you guys up you know it's not like you're not really worried about losing a point you're not worried about any severe official action at that point why not give it a shot chris wade is uh right that conor mcgregor pulled out like all of the stops in terms of the if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying uh, playbook here. Uh, Mostly ineffectually, I would say. Like, it's not like uh, any of this kind of rule-bending slash rule-breaking was able to keep Habib Nurmagomedov at bay because we all saw how the fight turned out. He did get mad about it. Yeah, he did get mad about it. He did talk to the referee about it. Uh, On one hand, it was a nice uh, execution of Dundasso because the ref didn't do anything about it, even when the ref is standing right there. And we clearly on television can see that Conor McGregor has his fingers hooked around the bottom of Habib Nurmagomedov's glove. Uh, On the other hand, like, didn't really affect the outcome of the fight as we saw. So uh, kind of like a beginner's uh, use of Dundasso, I would say. But I do think, like, it points out that clearly Conor McGregor and his camp came into this fight knowing that they needed to pack a lunch. Because they (laughs) had every, like, trick ready to go. What level of Dundasso would you say it is? Is that like extension cord uh, wrapped around and tied as a belt? Yeah. Or is that like braided leather belt? Is it's it, not braided leather because you got to. It can't be piano key. No, no, no. It's, uh, I would say, uh, uh, cut off extension cord tied around your waist as a belt okay. level. All right, let's do this. And we're moving away from the fight now. We are moving into the uh, the brawl. Okay. The after fight brawl. The Malay. Uh, this one comes from professional road cyclist Dejambaline Abuyaparov. Nailed it. Nice work. He writes, so when Connor said, quote, when one of us goes to war, we all go to war. I'm guessing this was just hyperbole on his part. Little did he know that Habib and his team appear to have taken this sentiment a little more seriously. Can you incite a gang war and then not be blamed for the consequences? Or was Habib and his team way out of order 
parenthetically, probably both. I'd just love to hear your thoughts. So, Ben, when this thing is over, yeah, Habib Nurmagomedov, who had just put in 18 minutes of work, turns around. You could Actually, he, he talked some shit to Conor McGregor, and there was an awesome moment where McGregor was sitting up against the cage where you could tell McGregor kind of wanted to say something back to him, but then he just kind of sighed, and you could see in his mind him thinking... I just have to take this one. Yeah. Like, I just have to sit here There's and take this one. nothing to say. Yeah. Then Nurmagomedov turns around, walks toward the cage. He's pointing and talking, I assume, to Connor's corner, to everyone who's, who's there. Next thing you know... Throws his mouthpiece. This guy goes over the top of the cage and cannonballs into the crowd to get himself a piece of Dylan Dennis. Dylan Dennis, of all of people. Of all people, who is out there in the crowd... And frankly, all hell breaks loose at that point. Uh, well, as the wide shot then later confirms, you know, we've seen some Zapruder angle, kind of Zapruder film kind of angles here going on to analyze exactly what happens. But McGregor is just sitting there, and then Habib goes over the fence. Then that's when McGregor gets up to get involved. Another one of Habib's teammates uh, is up on the fence, presumably looking like he's trying. You can't tell, I guess, at that point. Is he trying to join the brawl? Is he trying to get in there and break it up? But McGregor goes after him. Takes a shot at him. Uh, and then more of Habib's teammates jump in, uh, including homeboy who's supposed to fight Artem Lobov. Yeah. Which I think we're going to talk about this later. That yeah. Artem Lobov looks like he might get screwed again. He is. They already said that they're going to call that fight off. <laughs> really? Yes. Artem Lobov, for the second time, is maybe the only UFC fighter who really is getting sanctioned here. <laughs> <laughs> and for doing the least of anything, yeah. he's not even involved in this one. We, we don't even know if he was there. <laughs> and then, then you know, they jump in and try to uh, uh, run up on McGregor inside the cage. And then that's when it's really totally crazy by that point. As far as this, I'm sure we're going to talk about this kind of from all angles. But I am surprised at the extent to which people want to uh, absolve Nurmagomedov of any responsibility for this. I get what the, I mean, I get what we're saying that like, hey, McGregor did the whole bus attack thing. He spent the, the weeks leading up to this kind of, I don't know if inciting a gang war is exactly how I would put it, but I understand what you're saying there. But still, when you make the decision to jump out of the cage and then go after and attack the other guy's cornermen, that is a decision you made. Yeah. And you know you can't do that. Yeah. You know that that's just. Like, that is not going to be received well. It's not only against, like, Nevada State Athletic Commission guidelines, but, like, laws and stuff. You just can't do it, and there's no way you can be like, but this guy said some things, and therefore what I did is excused. Especially it makes no sense to me in the world of pro fighting. Because that is, like, if they were lawyers, and one of them was over here being like, and another thing about your dad, you dumb motherfucker, and then I would be like, okay, the lawyer goes over there and p- start punching the guy. Maybe it's excused. Yeah. But you work in the one business where you are not only allowed, but richly rewarded for beating the hell out of the guy who said all these things that made you mad. Like, for you then to be like, well, how could I possibly control myself? I had to go out and fight these other guys. Like, no, you you already got to fight the guy. Yeah. And you won. Yeah. <sighs> I'm having a hard time putting all of my thoughts together about this. No, there's a lot of thoughts. I will start here. I want to talk about the point that you just made uh, as, you know, as we move on here. Um, but this it was such a weird time for Habib Nurmagomedov to do this. Not that there's necessarily a great time to th- jump into the crowd and try to fight Dylan Danis. But like he had just triumphed in this fight. The biggest moment of his career. 
he had a $2 million paycheck coming his way, which has now been withheld by the California or the Nevada State Athletic Commission, uh, at least for now. He, he will get paid eventually, but uh, he could get suspended, etc. It was like what should have been a terrific triumph for Habib Nurmagomedov kind of all got sidetracked. The whole, the whole dialogue got sidetracked and distracted um, by this brawl. Yeah. So it was like unfortunate timing in that regard. Um, okay. Wh- before you move on, one question about the timing, the idea that like, okay, he's, he said these things to me, therefore, like I had to go and do this. I just l- completely lost it. You, you waited until after you won the fight. Like yeah. there were times during fight week and stuff where if you were really just not capable of controlling yourself when you see these guys, you could have gone after them. And the reason he didn't is because then your fight would have been called off probably and you would have missed your payday and all that other stuff. You wouldn't have got the chance to do this fight. Yeah. He waited until exactly like that was just over. He had just gotten to do the part that he wanted to do and then went and did this other yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, and we don't know exactly what incited this. Like Khabib Nurmagomedov is clearly saying stuff to Conor McGregor's corner and I don't know what was said back. Like, we know that Dylan Dennis is a colorful character and a guy who I believe was, uh, what asked to leave the Marcelo Garcia jujitsu camp at one point, uh, for some kind of bad acting. Uh, it's possible that, that somebody in the McGregor corner said something that enticed Habib over the cage. So, and then he talked afterward, obviously, about McGregor saying all this stuff at the Don't you think he would have said conference. that? Like, if you said, like, hey, Dylan Danis looked at me and he said, whatever, and then I went after him. Maybe. Because I think that would be, yeah, people maybe. would be more sympathetic to him then. Maybe, maybe. I, I, I just don't know. Uh, I guess my initial, well, here, let's say this first before we move on. Like, both of these things are bad, and I'm going to say equally bad, that Conor McGregor and his cohorts storm into the UFC 223 media day and throw a uh, metal hand truck through a window of oh, a bus. Oh, I think bus. that's worse. That is definitely... I mean, I mean in terms of, other... an, of an actual crime, it's probably worse. Because well, you picked affects... up a, what is essentially a weapon and threw it through the window of a bus. It that's effect, bad. It affects so many other fighters when he did that. I mean, it, like, three different fights in yes. one way or another got yeah. called off of that one. Like, guys are dealing with glass in their eye. Other people are dealing with, like, PTSD stuff from it. Like, that is definitely worse to me than this. I'm going to say it is, at best, equally bad. And I agree with you that, like, Conor McGregor... Uh, throwing the thing through the bus window is probably worse. Although Habib Nurmagomedov casting himself into a crowd of civilians. Yeah. Uh, and Matt is, Damon was cage side. He could have been hurt. Yeah. We what, don't want then. What, we don't want Matt Damon to be hurt. Uh, and it also like definitely played a role in setting off some violence outside the cage. I mean, some of that might have happened anyway, like just in the concourse of the uh, T-Mobile arena where you see people fighting and stuff. But uh, ending it on that kind of chaos does not help calm things down as people head into the Las Vegas night. Yeah, I want to read this question and then uh, maybe we can get into some discussion about what exactly is going on right now in this subculture. What's really going on? This question is from John Fletcher. He writes, For me, Habib's action after the main event were not only very disappointing, but really made everyone look worse, including McGregor for seemingly instigating this with the Dolly incident and religious attacks on Habib, as well as the culture and MMA in general, where there seems to be constant competition between fighters on how outlandish and overboard they can go with hype antics. Some say that McGregor, quote, won this situation, but I think it was more of a cautionary tale about what can transpire when you keep having to top your last shtick so much that eventually someone loses their shit. 
Uh, where do we go from here? Is it wrong to ask that everyone just tone their shit down a couple notches and maybe look for other ways to hype fights? Because it looks like Habib and his team never got the memo that you aren't actually supposed to fight the dude's entire camp uh, when you're doing the old country versus country thing. Also props to the UFC for getting both fighters out of the octagon and seemingly uh, being more concerned with defusing the situation than anything else. That's interesting, that last part, because especially when you can see Dana White in the cage with Habib afterwards yeah. trying to talk him into, like, hey, we're not going to do the whole belt presentation thing. Let's just get you out of here. Right, which I think is right. Like. Yeah, and Habib's answer seemed to be like, hey, because Dana White was like, they're going to start throwing stuff at you, and it's going to be a mess. Like, let's get you out of here right now and defuse the situation. And his answer seemed to be like, I don't care if they throw things. And Dana White was like, you're worried about all these other people who have to be in the cage here with you. Like, the guy in the magenta blazer working for the Nevada State Athletic Commission does not necessarily deserve to have a battery thrown at his head uh, just because you want to make sure you get the belt presentation off. Right. Plus, you had America's dad, Daniel Cormier, in there uh, with Luke Rockhold. <laughs> Luke Rockhold seemingly wearing a strike force hat? Yeah, weird uh, uh, omen. Like, a harbinger <laughs> of what was to come. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Daniel Cormier, obviously, uh, everyone's dad is out there trying to defuse the situation. Let's talk about the overall point here in this uh, email from from John Fletcher, because I think that one of the things that's happening here, Ben, is that in the last couple of years, a lot of, a lot of people in this subculture, including maybe us, have been knowingly or unknowingly sucked into this line of reasoning that anything that makes money is okay, and that it is all kind of like part of the game that we are that what is happening here is not real life. Yeah. And that I think it's that, fight hype. Yeah. And that I think in many ways we kind of have to get away from that idea because some of this shit obviously does affect real life. This isn't professional wrestling where like everyone is involved in a fictional scripted storyline and we are all working together to try to put on a show because clearly as we found out after this fight, some people don't play Conor McGregor. Plays a lot. And I think <laughs> Would you he, say he played too much? He played too much. And I think deep down in his heart, in his brain's heart, he knows <laughs> he knows that what he's doing is outlandish. He knows that he's yes. crossing a lot of lines. He is doing it both to affect his opponent's mental preparation for the fight and also to hype the fight and make everybody more money. But Conor McGregor is in on the joke. And there's this video that's out today. I don't know if you saw it. That's from In the Cage where they break, and I think it's like after the second or third round. It's after the third round, because they say they're going to the championship rounds, where McGregor puts his his head close to Habib's ear, and he says, it's only business. Huh. So, like, McGregor is in the cage kind of saying... Too late for that. Hey, man, like, this is just, <laughs> what, like... take it easy? And I think that, like, we kind of need to take a step back a little bit, man, and stop, like, uh, stop being so easily like sucked in by this idea that oh they're just hyping the fight and like this is all just part of the show and like whatever is financially viable must be okay uh because clearly like Habib Nurmagomedov comes from a part of the world and is a very you know religiously devout person and uh we think that he has very traditional values and all this stuff uh he comes from a world where the stuff said to hype this fight obviously offended him greatly okay I'm not saying that that made it okay for him to bum rush Dylan Danis in the in the crowd, but like I think that we that that like the 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 real problem here is kind of like subculture wide with a lot of the things that we have, and I hate to use this word, but normalized uh, during you know about selling fights. I agree with that point. I, where it becomes a problem for me is when. 
people and I've seen this argument over and over again, especially on social media, where people are like, "Hey, different culture, man. Where that guy comes from, you know, they'll go after you and tear your throat out if you say something they don't like." Well, that's a shitty thing to do. Like that, you 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 don't get to do that. Like even if like that's how they do it where you're from. Uh, when you come to Las Vegas to participate in a professional prize fight, they're still going to expect you to abide by like the, the local norms. You don't get to be like, in Dagestan, we kill people for this. And people aren't going to be like, well, okay, then it's excused. Like, that's just not how it works. But I do agree with what you're saying. And I think that like, there's been a creep, like a slow creep in what we're willing to accept in those regards. And you can kind of trace it back to like Chael Sonnen, Anderson Silva stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Arguably, some of the stuff Chael Sonnen said to Anderson Silva was worse. You know, just the stuff about Brazil, the stuff he would say about Anderson Silva's wife, his family, uh, you know, where he's telling him, get down on your knees and pray to your monkey god uh, that I don't come beat you up, stuff like that. And it's like, when that happened, we were all just like, ooh, isn't this this exciting? Isn't this fun? Somebody's going to get a rise out of Anderson Silva after he's been looking like bored. Anderson Silva managed to beat Chael Sonnen twice. Never once felt the need to jump out of the cage and uh, start a fracas. Right, yeah. On the, I, think on the floor. I think the truth of the matter was that Anderson Silva was somewhat, quote-unquote, in on the joke about a lot of that stuff also. Well, you know, it made, I, I wrote a thing about it today, kind of about, especially when Habib shows up afterwards and he's like, this is a respect sport. This is not a trash-talking sport. And a part of my brain immediately rebelled at that and was like, no, this is a trash-talking. I mean, this, this always has been a trash-talking sport because of the nature of it, because of... Like in other sports, you know, if two baseball players are talking trash, and we we might hope, hope that the something will break down enough for them to participate in physical violence against each other. And in fighting, that's where we begin. We begin at the point when we already know you're going to beat each other up. So the more stuff you say and the more angry you get at each other before the fight, the more we feel like you're emotionally invested and the more emotionally invested we are. And so, like, I, I went back and did a lot of reading on, like, the, you know, Ollie Frazier, like... That one where a lot of people around Frazier were kind of telling him before the first one in 1971 in Madison Square Garden, kind of telling him like, hey, man, this is just what Ali does. Like, this is him building the fight. This is going to be good for all of you guys. You're all going to make more money because of this. Like, he's framing it as part of the larger culture war that's going on in America in the 70s. Um, when he's calling you an Uncle Tom, you know, he's just kind of trying to make sure that the, the white establishment identifies with you and everybody else identifies with him. But to Frazier, he was never in on the joke. And even years later, wasn't in on the joke. Still hated Ali. You know, there's quotes from him saying, like, when Ali lit the Olympic torch in 1996, Frazier saying, I wish I could have run up there and pushed him in. And even after, you know, when everybody's saying, don't you feel bad for him? And you see he's got Parkinson's now. And, and Joe Frazier saying, that just tells you who won those fights. He doesn't have Parkinson's. He has left hookitis, is what uh, Joe Frazier used to say. So it's like, there was another situation where it was like, people got into it. It worked. To like hype a fight, and yet it left some scars. Yeah, I mean, maybe the the important point to make is that this is not a consequence free equation. True, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like we have this idea that anything that you say leading up to this fight is going to be okay as long as it helps uh, everyone besides us profit from it. That like that it's all fine, and then they're going to fight, and then all of the stuff that was said before the fight is just going to magically evaporate. And no one is going to retain any of it. And I just don't think that's true for everyone. No. And for whatever reason, it's not true, clearly, for Habib Nurmagomedov. Uh, I want to read these two emails together because they get to uh, the UFC's role in all of this. Uh, this one from Jordan Lutz, who writes, 
What Habib and his team did was horrible, but why aren't the commentators or anyone mentioning how McGregor and his team threw a dolly through a bus window? That was a huge part of the UFC's promotion, WTF. And then Danny Fitzgerald writes, It would be great to hear your thoughts on the UFC's role in the chaos of Saturday night uh, during this week's discourse. After 25 years building up MMA, and for the most part being good custodians of the sport's reputation, the new owners of the UFC now appear to be on the verge of tearing it back down. Dishing out interim belts to all and sundry is one thing, but last night was an embarrassment for the sport and the fallout has been heartbreaking to follow. Chuck Liddell, of all people, nailed it for me in his, re- in his recent Instagram posts. Uh, what are your views? So, Ben, in some ways, are we reaping what the UFC has sown here in terms of using the bus attack to promote UFC 229 uh, begot, in some ways, the post-fight brawl? Yeah, well, I think that you can't separate those two because especially not so much that the bus attack happened, but that the UFC didn't do anything about it. Did not do anything to, uh, to punish Conor McGregor for it. Let the legal system handle him, which means like, you know, he paid some fines. Uh, going to do some community service. Going to get sued. Uh, but then the UFC was totally hands off in that and then goes, goes ahead and uses the footage of the bus attack to promote the fight. And on one hand, I think it's somewhat defensible because it is part of the story right. of this rival. You can't really ignore. If they completely ignored it, we'd criticize that. Yeah, but then yeah. The no, thing, you're right like, about that. But they do ignore a lot of stuff that they don't want to true. include during the lead up to other fights. And true. it's definitely a conscious decision to use the bus attack and not use other stuff in other fights. I think what is more a part of like the the arc of how we got here is the fact that the UFC took no action against Conor McGregor. Because again, like Khabib had opportunities to go after somebody at many different points. And he he did not do it before because if you do it before you ruin the fight. Like you your fight will not be allowed to happen and you won't get paid. But if you do it right afterwards, you can be confident that the UFC is probably not going to do anything to you if they don't have to. Or at least you feel like maybe if you have that Conor McGregor pull, they're not going to do anything. If you're somebody else, they might do something to you. Uh, but the UFC, in that way, has contributed to it feeling like a consequence-free environment for some of this stuff. So I can understand if Nurmagomedov, either consciously or not, kind of like internalized that message and felt like, all right, now it's my turn. William Payne writes, so Sunday morning I was hanging out with a couple of non-MMA watching friends and they were asking me how the fight was. I explained the situation and showed them the aftermath of the main event and one of them started going off about how MMA is barbaric and too violent and that it's lowbrow entertainment. It was difficult to attempt to defend anything because, well, he was kind of right in this instance. Is there any way that we can even defend the sport after the fiasco of this as well as the Brooklyn incident? Uh... I mean, all this stuff is bad. And we will say that again and again. Like, it's all bad at all. I think that there are people who are mainstream sports fans that this, like, turns them off. And clearly there are people that are mainstream sports fans that this turns them on. That, like, you know, the bus incident probably did help UFC 229 score a higher buy rate. We still don't know exactly what that's going to be. But, like, it definitely uh, increased the intrigue. And I would argue, like... Uh, you know, once the dust all settles from all of this stuff about the brawl and we figure out what happens to, to the, the various individuals, uh, it's probably going to make people feel more intrigued with what happens next for Habib Nurmagomedov also. You know, this is one of the things that I wondered after this fight was because we talked about it beforehand that the UFC's projections, the trending about how many pay-per-views this is going to sell. And if you believed... You know, Dana White's saying, okay, we think now $3 million. Then that means you're going to basically double the audience that you had for the Conor McGregor-Nate Diaz one. So that means a lot of people who don't normally watch watching, if you're at all correct. And 
based on just the the talk around this one, that seems to have been the case. You know, like if somebody jumped out, if somebody jumps out of the cage in Moncton and goes on a, a Malay, the BBC's probably not talking about it. But yeah. because of this the scale of this one to begin with, more people were paying attention. And I wondered, did those people tune in, see this, and go, Jesus Christ, this stuff is terrible? Or did they see it and go, yeah, this is pretty much what I thought the MMA people were up to when I wasn't paying attention. This is more or less what I assumed they were doing. This is not that shocking to me based on like what my prior concept of the, the sport and that whole world was like. Because I bet there's a lot more people that kind of looked at it and felt like, all right, yeah, damn it. The, the cage fighter got in a, a fight right outside the cage. That does not seem unthinkable to me. I mean, it's it's different to us because we know... We know kind of where the lines have been drawn in the sport, the the chaos you can get away with and the chaos you can't. All right, I'm going to read these two also because I think it gets us started talking about what happens next here. Uh, this one from J-Dog in Little Rock who writes, Who can beat Habib Nurmagomedov? Tony Ferguson has been in severe danger at some point in his last five fights at least, but has the gas tank and the jiu-jitsu to stifle the ground and pound for five rounds. Kevin Lee looks good on the ground but has trouble in the weight cutting and cardio department. Who can take the talons of the eagle and live to tell the tale? Uh, and then the Hulkster, Terry Bollea, oh, writes us. Good to hear from him. Here. Uh, do you think he's still upset about Bam Margera being dead? <laughs> well, I'm glad to see him using his real name. That means like he's, this is a sincere question from the real, the real man. Hulkster, I'm not dead. Uh, why are the MMA media harping on a rematch for Conor versus Habib? Everywhere I go, I see it mentioned. In what world does the challenger who got dominated and choked out deserve a rematch? I know you fuckers are counting on the coin from all the clicks, but let's be real. Ugly Tony deserves that shot. Uh, I agree with I agree with the Hulkster on that one. No, I, I agree too, but like, let's just kind of talk about what happens now because we still don't totally know what's going to happen to Nurmagomedov. Like, he still has to go in front of the Nevada State Athletic Commission uh, and m- he could get suspended. All right, but I mean, do you think he'll get any kind of meaningful suspension or do you think it'll be like the thing where they say, all right, you're suspended for six months. And he's like, well, I wasn't going to fight in those six months anyway. Fine. I think it'll be, he'll get fined. Uh, They're going to see this as an opportunity to jack a whole bunch of his money the way they do. And he's going to have to pay, you know, pound of flesh in that sense. And like, but I think that there will not be a lengthy suspension. If he got suspended for more for a year or more, I would be, very surprised. But even then, I mean, you hear Dana White talking about the possibility of stripping of, stripping him of the title. That seems to me to be taking it way too far. Because I agree you want to punish the guy, whatever. But he's the champion. Like, the, the, the belt is supposed to mean that he's the champion. We clearly saw he went out there. He dominated the last guy to have won the title. He's the champion. He's the yeah. best lightweight in the world. Suspend him, would you? But it seemed like even then Dana White was talking about, well, we would strip him of it like out of a promotional necessity because if he's suspended for too long, that means we can't promote the belt. I mean, create an interim title if you must, and you probably will. But he's the champion. He deserved that. Whatever he did afterwards it did not change the fact that he won the title straight up fair and square. Yeah, I think that there's two different conversations here. And one of the conversations sort of about like what I think and what you think we've been having you know, for uh, 40 minutes on this podcast so far. I think the other conversation is what is the best move for the UFC? Like, you know, clearly Habib Nurmagomedov by Tony Ferg- versus Tony Ferguson is an awesome fight. Uh, and a fight that we've tried to put together four times and both they have not made it to the cage at, on the same night yet. They made it to the cage on the same night this time. Yeah. It's not against each other. Is Yeah, that's that's true. Is there a, a way to justify a Conor McGregor rematch here? Like, uh, 
clearly that fight makes money. It might make more money now that there was a big like gang brawl outside the cage. But like, how, how do you put together that fight? How do you justify that fight? Not that you have to, but to me, it would just seem like, like I said uh, last week, we're having this rematch because McGregor didn't win. Right. Yeah. And it was not competitive enough for me where I felt like, you know what, though? If he has another shot at it, it'll really turn out differently. I mean, if you give him a rematch in like six months or a year's time, I think you're looking at the exact same situation. He's going out there and he's getting beat up. Plus, it might be borderline irresponsible of you, to, if you're the UFC, to take them and throw them back in there together. Because what do you think Conor McGregor is going to do after Nurmagomedov attacks his team? And then the narrative afterwards is, well, this was all Conor McGregor's fault. Like, even you know, you got... Habib and his manager basically being like, Conor McGregor's a terrible person. He he caused this. He's responsible for Khabib's actions, basically. And then is, or is McGregor supposed to tone it down when they start doing press events to, to build up a rematch? Like, is he supposed to be basically admit defeat and be like, well, yeah, I'm not going to say anything about him this time because I don't want him to freak out and attack my teammates anymore. I don't see that happening. No. And so you'd have to you have it on an island. Right? So, uh, with a moat uh, okay. full of sharks, so no one can get in or an, out. An undisclosed island. An undisclosed location. Yeah. Uh, Dylan Dennis can't be there. Okay. None of Habib's people can be there. It's just Connor and Habib. You're saying just send location? Yeah, just send, send me location, location. To each guy. All right. Here now, from the UFC's point, point of view, is my devil's adm- advocate, p- purely pragmatic way forward. And I'm just, I'm not suggesting that this is the right thing to do, but I'm saying if you wanted to justify a rematch, is the way to do it by stripping Habib Nurmagomedov of the lightweight title uh, for for whatever reason? Because then suddenly you start the whole fucking thing over again, right? Like you you started the whole process over again. Uh, Depending on how long Habib is suspended, like McGregor can fight somebody, Tony Ferguson can fight somebody. And then maybe you get yourself back into a situation where you those two guys can fight again. Otherwise, I don't see a way to really justify McGregor versus Nurmagomedov too. Yeah, well, if he is suspended and you do like an interim title McGregor versus Tony Ferguson, first of all, that's a crackerjack. It's a crackerjack of a fight right there. Then I guess you could tell yourself like, okay, whoever wins there, even if you don't get them rematch that you're hoping for to make a whole bunch of money off of you get if tony ferguson beats conor mcgregor he gets a little bit of a bump from that Nurmagomedov has a little bit of a bump from that then you throw them in together and you still make a fraction of the buys but it feels a little more defensible that way i feel dirty for even suggesting it <laughs> well it's not like but if they can't if i was the fixer if i was wilson wolf or whatever from uh, Pulp Fiction, Harvey Keitel in a tuxedo. You'd roll in here, and the UFC came to me, and they were like, "How do we put together Habib and Connor again?" That would be my answer. And you some for some reason come from a cocktail party at like nine o'clock in the morning. Well, just like usual. Uh, what about the matchup, Tony Ferguson versus Habib Nurmagomedov? Just assuming that we could ever live in a world where both of them were healthy and fighting each other on the same night—that's a heck of a fight, that isn't is it? Hot like, fire. Because uh, Tony Ferguson is beastly. And like fourteen and one in the UFC or whatever it is, unpredictable, unpredictable, uh, durable, can take damage except for when power cords are involved. Uh, that's right. Uh, as tremendous cardio, he's kind of a big guy. I mean, once again, I, I feel like I'm back in a situation where that's two guys that I have no idea what would happen if you yeah. put him in there. And he's 
judging by everything he said and the way he approaches workouts and the way he approaches the need for physical therapy after knee surgery, completely insane in a way that makes him terrifying. Yeah. I love it. Especially, I love his quotes afterwards where he's talking about how uh, he doesn't need to call him tiramisu or McNuggets because he's got all the sauce and he's sweet. Also telling these two knuckleheads are running around out there embarrassing the sport, acting like a couple of animals. Well, I'm the dog catcher. Wow. That yeah. was in the AP report, Chad. Yeah. Come on. All right, here's two about Tony Ferguson versus Anthony Pettis. This one from Aaron Hill. Is there anybody who wears damage better than Tony Ferguson? No, I don't. I think the answer to that is no. Uh, and this one from Gino Orlandini, who I assume is a famous soccer player or an auto racer or something along those lines. He writes, ugly Tony smashes pretty Tony and reminds us all that this ain't no beauty contest. But did you see that post by Presser? Tony Ferguson says he invented wearing three-piece suits. Anthony Pettis isn't a quitter, but also they reviewed the tapes and he totally is. T. Ferg may one day leave MMA for a career in comedy. Is this just Conor McGregor derangement syndrome? Or did Tito Ortiz slip into a super convincing Tony Ferguson (laughs) skin suit and have too many snorts of proper 12? What's really going on? Uh... We talked about this a little bit earlier, Ben, but I think it deserves a little bit more attention. Tony Ferguson and Anthony Pettis were on their way to having uh, a fight of the year caliber brawl uh, when Anthony Pettis is forced to retire after the second round. Retire from the fight, not retire from fighting, we hope, uh, due to a uh, a broken hand. Yeah, and the moment there between Anthony Pettis and Duke Rufus uh, in the corner, I know people didn't exactly like seeing the fight stop there because it was a hell of a fight, but... This is what we claim to want, right? As a corner man who's going to go out there and look out for his fighter first and rather than thinking about shoving him back in at all costs. Right. And especially because of the long relationship between those two. I mean, Duke Rufus is like a father figure to him. So for him to stand there and say, I can't put you back out there uh, if you can't use that hand, that's the responsible thing. That's what we want people to do. Or at least that's what we say we want people to do in those situations. But yeah, the Tony Ferguson has turned into a super interesting guy, not just because of the unconventional approach he has to many things, including fighting and working out, but also because he does have this kind of Yogi Berra quality to him now. When he gets up in interviews and he starts talking, you're like, it, I would say that it's an act, except you pull it off so convincingly and so consistently. And it's better, it, the Tito Ortiz one is just him trying to, he tries for a common phrase and fucks it up. Yeah. Tony Ferguson is doing something completely different. Like he's out there just saying stuff that at times it makes sense only to him. And then sometimes you think about it and you're like, wait a minute. Is that actually brilliant? I mean, I'm totally into the Tony Ferguson thing. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Uh, no, there's not a lot not to like about Tony Ferguson. Uh, I also think Duke Rufus deserves nothing but praise. Obviously, it's a... Uh, it's anticlimactic if when a fight ends like that, especially a great fight like we were having between uh, Tony Ferguson and Anthony Pettis. But like you said, Duke Rufus has known Anthony Pettis basically since he was a kid. Uh, he's been his trainer for a long time. Nobody knows Anthony Pettis, the fighter, better than than Duke Rufus. And if he looks at him and says he can't go back out for the third round, I'm going to take his word for it, man. Like, yeah. uh, good good for Duke Rufus for having the the stones to, to call that fight off and not send Anthony Pettis out there into harm's way if he didn't think that he was going to be able to take it. Well, you didn't see Anthony Pettis protesting too much, you know? No. He, he, he kind of knew that was the right thing to do, I think. All right. This one comes from two-time MMA Journalist of the Year, Suzanne Davis. Oh, wow. Who writes, Do your balls ever get hot? If so, which method do you employ to chill those hot balls down a notch? I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. 
I don't see how removing your shorts, like you still got the underwear on, you're still wearing a cup, presumably. That's re- that's holding a lot of heat in. I don't see how just removing the outermost layer is going to significantly cool your balls down in that moment. On any normal night, Derek Lewis's third round KO of Alexander Volkov, 11 seconds before the final horn, followed by his uh, completely Derek Lewis style post fight interview would probably be the top headline here, right? And indeed, uh, Derek Lewis pulling off his shorts, and then Joe Rogan asked him why he did it, and Derek Lewis saying, "My balls were hot," and then Joe Rogan balls say, was hot. Then Joe Rogan saying, "I understand." Uh, <laughs> would probably be the, probably be the top highlight. Uh, what kind of a star is Derek Lewis here? I don't mean Derek Lewis is clearly like really good at the uh, promotional part of the game. That he's he's. Uh, He's fun to have around. He's fun to have around. He's on a three-fight win streak now. One of those wins happens to be over Francis Ngannou from in a terrible fight from UFC 226. But do you buy him as like a championship contender? He does not buy himself as a championship contender, right? It just he he seems like uh, uh, like you said a fun guy to have around and and a, a guy who like frankly already seemed like he had retired once. So, like, I'm just not sure where the Derek Lewis train is headed. I mean, I'm sure I want to be on the train. Right. I'm just not sure where we're going. Uh, He even, in this fight, you know, from early in the first round, kind of looked like he didn't want to be there. There were moments where you're like, well, okay, is he he just not in this? And then he pulls out that last-second knockout. Uh, And then also, I don't think, I'm afraid this is going to be lost, but the way in the post-fight interview where he wants to be on Joe Rogan's podcast, and it seems like mostly the reason he wants to be on Joe Rogan's podcast is because you can smoke weed there. He's like, I want to be on your podcast, smoke some weed. Is is if like, he sees Joe Rogan's podcast mainly as a way to get some free weed. Yeah, you think uh, Derek Luz is sitting at home watching... The Joe Rogan podcast being like, God, I bet that's good weed. Yeah. Man, they are smoking weed during this. I, I, I wonder what right that weed too, is but like. it is good weed yeah. on the Joe Rogan podcast. I wonder what it's like to smoke weed over there. But good. even he, when they're asking him, you know, what about a, are you a title contender? What about a title shot? And he's like, man, my cardio sucks too much for me to be a title contender after that. I, but, you know, we've decided, it seems, that to some extent, that title stuff is a fairy tale. Like Nate Diaz said, you can go a long way with being the fun knockout artist who is a colorful personality and is a fun guy to have around and we just want to see a fight. The UFC doesn't want to lose a guy like Derek Lewis, whether or not he can fight for the title. The cheeseburger walrus writes us to say, how about the dominator Reyes? Uh, He passed the gatekeeper test by defeating OSP, showed an all around solid game and even put an exclamation part, an exclamation mark on it in the last two seconds. Thoughts on the fight, and where does Reyes go from here? Uh, one thing before we move on from the Derek Lewis thing is brought to my attention by Brandon Boyd on the Patreon live stream. Lewis said today that he doesn't wear a cup because they don't have one big enough. So I guess that answers that part. Just don't know where the train's going, but it's fun to be on it. <laughs> uh, ben, Dominic Reyes is 10-0. and 0. He has uh, four wins on the, in the UFC now. Uh, all of them are, well, all of them, I guess officially this Ovin St. Prue fight was a decision. Uh, but aside from that, they are all stoppage victories. Uh, he, I believe he's a young fella too, right? 28 years old, uh, in this division where, you know, a couple few wins is, is as good as, uh, a dozen wins in the, almost any actual competitive division. Uh, is Dominic Reyes like the, uh, I don't want to say the future of light heavyweight, but he seems like an awfully interesting young prospect in a division that really, really needs interesting young prospects. Yeah. He's a somebody and he can definitely, it seems 
crack into that upper part of the division where it starts getting serious in a hurry. The question is, what is he going to do there? Because right now, like we've talked about before, we kind of think from a distance of the division as being a, a dumpster fire. And it kind of is if you look at like the top 15. But if you look at the top three or four, there's some scary dudes there. Absolutely. And so it is a question. I think that this win proved that he's headed toward that that top three or four. What's going to happen when he gets there, though? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I feel like it's a fun question to find out the answer to at some point. What about how this thing ended? I'm, I mean, I'm yeah. not going to tell you that I have the rule book right in front of me, so I don't know exactly what the the call is here. But Dominic Reyes clearly knocks out Ovin St. Prue before the bell. Right. The punch lands before the bell. The punch lands, and then the bell sounds kind of as OSP's lifeless body is collapsing to the canvas. And Herb stands there and tells him, or is it Herb or is it Big Dan? It's one of them. Tells him, you got to get up. How is this not a knockout? Like, what's the official rule? If the ref doesn't get over there and call the fight off before the end of the fight, it's a decision? Like, that seems weird to me. Like, clearly this seemed like a knockout right at the horn well yeah and it seems like telling him you got to get up is trying to do a test right to see if he was knocked out or just knocked down at the end and if if he can get up and walk to his corner then you decide okay he was just knocked down we let's see what the judges have to say if he can't get up then you decide okay he's knocked out and the fight's over so then you're telling me the outcome is determined by what the guy is capable of doing after the final horn has sounded which seems like, that can't be the case, can it? I I couldn't tell you. Although it would be interesting in a fight where the outcome was disputed. Like, where, you yeah. know, if, if, if the judges if had, had been yeah. on the verge of winning a unanimous decision there, then it might matter. Uh, it was just lucky for Dominic Reyes that he was, he was ahead on the, on the scorecards also. It just, it's another situation where it seems like nobody knows. How about this question from Brian Boitano, from figure skating great Brian Boitano? Oh, nice. Yeah, good. Uh, Olympic, American Olympic hero. Uh, Scott Holtzman and Aspen Ladd, where have you been my entire life? The undercard of 229 needs some love and sweet, sweet discourse. There was something for everyone there. Tons of finishers and fresh new faces to get excited about. What were your favorite standout moments that got overshadowed as fuck? Uh, they did get overshadowed as fuck also. That is a, uh accurate description. You know, if I wasn't already into Scott Hot sauce Holtzman, yeah. for obvious reasons, just based on the words I just said there. He goes out there, just some killer elbows to win this fight, and then I find out that he played semi-professional hockey for yeah. the Knoxville Ice Bears. Yeah. And when he takes out his mouthpiece, you see he's missing a tooth, and you're like, I can't, that could come from any of your, your pastimes. Trying to become one of my guys out there. I tell you what, I talked to Scott Holtzman for my story about fighter recoveries, and he was like one of the most interesting people that I talked to. God, both, I'm glad to hear that. Both because he played a bunch of different sports. I think he was also like a uh, a club baseball player in college and like played high school football and then played hockey. He played uh, hockey at the University of Tennessee, I believe. I mean, yeah. as soon as I mentioned something on Twitter about him playing hockey, somebody sent me his stats from University of Tennessee and a year at the Knoxville Ice Bears. God bless the internet. Uh, and like... I asked him a bunch of questions about like sports and like, which sport was the hardest, and he was like, far and away, MMA, MMA is the hardest. Like, I thought I was tough when I played hockey, and I had to take it to a whole different level in order to be a professional fighter. But he was one of these guys that like talked to me a bunch about how much it hurts to compete in fighting, even when you win. In fact, like his, 
I asked him which fight had the most difficult physical recovery. And he told me that the fight where I think he was in like XFC or something right before he came to the UFC he had a five round uh, lightweight title defense where he won uh, like a clean slate unanimous decision, won every round on every judge's scorecard. And he said he was like sore for six months after it, just basically from beating the shit out of a guy for 25 minutes. He was like my hands, my elbows, my knees, my foot. Like I just hurt for like six months. He was one of the people that I talked to who was like unexpectedly honest and like forthcoming about like being, and especially being like a preliminary fighter. Like being a guy who goes through all of this physical uh, pain and, uh, you know, uh, mental like torture a lot of the time. And then like you get paid, you know, 12 and 12 or whatever and you yeah. fight on the undercard. <laughs> That's it. One of my guys. I'm saying uh, it right now. I'm going to say Aspen Ladd also. Uh, she she looked like she was about to pass out at the weigh-in. Didn't she say I'm fucked up? Mm-hmm. Like before she got on the scale and then beats uh, uh, Tanya Evinger. Via first round TKO. That's a serious win right there. Yeah, it is. And and just al- Malder. Also a young person, right? Like uh 23. 20, 23 years old. Uh judging just judging from the response on social media, it seems like Aspen Ladd is one of the big winners here. Like everybody wanted to talk about Aspen Ladd. Well, yeah, and uh I listened to her post fight interview afterwards where, you know, they're asking her about screaming as she is beating the hell out of Tanya Evinger and she's talking about how that is a primal moment when you because when you think about it that's somebody trying to take everything away from you that you've trained all your life for and then when they asked her like hey how would you feel about maybe getting on the Toronto card and she was like fuck yeah I've never been there I'd like to go okay so that's just a fun way to see the world beat people up there uh Slick Williams writes Michelle Watterson who Julie Kedzie perfectly nicknamed Peanut had a fun <laughs> ass scrap with Felice Herrig Goddamn, she can kick. The only letdown was her post-fight interview. She's just so damn nice and reasonable. I feel like she could have drummed up some buzz for a title fight if she talked about how she already beat the champ and would be happy to do it again. Somewhere out there in the infinite universe is a version of reality where she uh, tucked her yoga pants into some cowboy boots and named off a list of uh, named off a list of piece of shit straw weight disasters. Talk about Peanut and where she fits into the title picture. Yeah, I understand what Slick Williams was saying there, but don't you think it would have come off as insincere? I mean, that's just not who Michelle Watterson is. Right. She wants to be the first uh, UFC champion who's a mom, as she said. That's touching. Well, it's a good goal to have, too, also. She's now on a two-fight win streak, Courtney Casey, and then Saturday night, Felice Herrig uh, via unanimous decision. Um, Michelle Watterson is one of these people who has like been around the game for a long time, and I think because of it is is a fighter where we feel like, okay, we, we know what her ceiling is. Uh, but I still an interesting contender, I think, in, in at, at the strawweight division, a division that like has some interesting stuff going on with it right now. Uh, here's a question we should consider from uh, Dustin Pettit. Okay. Well, guys, as a former shit-eating wild man and a person that really gets his MMA news as a Patreon subscriber, let's get to 900, everyone. I find myself embarrassed this morning. Why? Because I have to admit to myself that I am more interested in what is going to happen next after the embarrassment of last night's post-fight antics. Even at its absolute worst, MMA keeps me hooked. Am I completely wrong, or can this only help the sport continue to grow? And then, a counterpoint from Dan Henry... God damn, I despise Conor McGregor. Am Irish? Have a red beard? Watch boxing before MMA? Appreciate a little trash talk? This guy is perfect for me. And yet I have almost given up on the UFC as a result of the rise of MacLife. I haven't paid for a pay-per-view since before the Mayweather money grab. Have I just aged out? 41. Or did Conor plus Dana take something that used to be fun and turn the obnoxious knob up to 11? 
please make like make like nation of Ulysses and Discord. Ah, uh, I appreciate that closing. Uh, it's like I said after the initial two twenty nine press conference. Conor McGregor is a volume trash talker, and when you actually sit down and watch the press conference and don't simply partake of his trash talk via sound bites and like the you know basically by watching the highlights, uh, it can be very overbearing and pretty obnoxious. And I guess I understand if that was a thing that does not appeal to you or like a thing that uh, that turns you off. Uh, I do understand like this like the weird reaction to UFC 229 of watching like it's a great night of fights marred at the end by uh weird chaos. But I do understand because I felt this this same way, like coming away from this pay-per-view kind of feeling like it has been a long time since the UFC really had me interested. And now weirdly I am like now I'm like, like man, I wonder what is going to happen now in the lightweight division. You mean like in the narrative arc sense? Yeah. Like I didn't think the brawl was a good thing to happen. But now that it's over, I'm kind of like, well, shit, I'm, yeah, I'm, what now? What, what is, what is the way forward here? Well, I think also, like, while I think definitely the brawl is not a good thing to happen, it makes it a little more, I don't want to say palatable, but a little easier to handle than, like, the bus attack for me, because when you look at what the outcome of it was, well, he got down there, he mixed it up with Dylan Dennis, it was kind of a mess, it was, you know, embarrassing i guess when you're thinking of it in terms of an mma fan you invited all your friends over and then you have to be like yeah this is the thing i'm into it's kind of embarrassing in that sense but nobody got seriously hurt really in that it was just you know pro fighters taking punches at each other some of them cheap shots but whatever they're all they're all professionals it's not like you know when you're going out into the the crowd and like the, the malice at the palace punching fans and stuff like that seems a little worse. This seems like violence among pro fighters. Uh, not a lot of innocent bystanders hurt the way they were with the bus attack. It seems a little easier to be like, okay, you you shouldn't do that again. That was not a good idea. And yet, let's work with it. About the question on Conor McGregor, we talked a little bit about this leading up to the fight, but like Dana White's... Uh forecast that they were going to do like 3 million pay-per-view buys and that some of those people must have been fight fans who watched the Floyd Mayweather boxing fight and then were like, I want to watch Conor McGregor like do the damn thing in the sport where he's supposed to be the best, I assume is what you would think if you were a casual fan. Uh, I wonder moving forward if, if, if indeed this UFC 229 fight against Habib Nurmagomedov was like the biggest selling UFC pay-per-view of all time, to what extent Conor McGregor's drawing power might be hurt by it. Because, like, we've seen him lose twice now. Like, both times he's handled it well. We all know that. Like, one of Conor McGregor's strengths, I think, is that kind of, like, mental fortitude and his ability to uh, to handle stuff with grace and sort of, like, uh, humbleness. But, like, if you wanted to come watch Conor McGregor do MMA and then the end result is he gets beat up for three and a half rounds and taps out in a way where, like, the most critical person would say he got beat up and then he quit, do you come back for more? And, like, even, yeah. if, you're, even if you're in the MMA bubble, are you kind of like, all right, well, we've seen Conor McGregor do his thing a bunch of times now, uh, and we know what he's good at and what he's not good at, and does that diminish his interest in any way? Yeah, no, and a, a take from uh, a friend of mine who does not watch any MMA and watch this one uh, after just hearing so much about it was – 
Conor McGregor sure didn't do a whole lot for all the shit he talked. And I had to agree that that did, in fact, appear to be the case. And so I think that that's probably the takeaway that a lot of people had was this guy who everybody told me is somebody and who I'm supposed to care about and who talked all this shit went out there and kind of just got beat up. Right. And I wonder what you would think if the only two Conor McGregor fights you had ever seen were the Mayweather fight and the Nurmagomedov fight. Because in both of those fights, he talked a raft of shit going into it and then uh, was kind of just hanging on for dear life the whole time. Yeah. No, I mean, I, maybe I guess he still has like an undeniable charisma and he is a showman. You can tell that kind of stuff. But does that mean you're going to pay 65 bucks to see him fight again? I don't know. I don't know if you will. And is that like I would assume that, that if 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 what we are saying is true, like that's bad news. It's not good news. Both for Conor McGregor and for the UFC, who is kind of desperately clinging to Conor McGregor's drawing power at this point, uh, since there's not a lot of other stuff happening to uh, to like really be interested and happy about. Well, kind of related here, question from Henrik Nilsson came through through the Patreon, which you can, if you were a Patreon subscriber, we will pay attention to your question when you write to us through there. How does McGregor come out of this weekend being the victim? Obviously, I wouldn't love Zubaira Tukagov cheap-shotting me, but what about everything that McGregor has done? Instead, they're banning Tukagov along with Makachev and probably finding Nurmagomedov. The brawl was a horrible idea on Khabib's part, but what in the actual fuck? This is a fair point. Like, it did seem like... A lot of people, well, while there are a lot of people willing to be like, hey, Habib obviously does not bear any responsibility from his, for his actions because somebody said something he didn't like, uh, there are also a lot of people kind of maybe unfairly rushing to cast McGregor as a, as a victim of all of this. Yeah, man, like if you thought it was hilarious when Conor McGregor slapped a ringside official at Bellator uh-huh. or like the numerous uh, pictures of him partying his ass off in between... Uh, his boxing match and, and his MMA fight uh, and like all of the other kind of like borderline erratic behavior that we saw for him while he was on walkabout. Uh, and then you equivocated and, and uh, thought that it was, you know, he was a genius for throwing a dolly through a bus or whatever. And like, think that all of his trash talk is the greatest. Like, I don't know that you can condemn Habib Nurmagomedov going after Dylan Dennis in the crowd. Like if you are okay with the former stuff, it seems to me like the the crowd brawl, Habib Nurmagomedov, cannonball into the fans is kind of the same thing in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's along the in the same zone. I also though think that the people who are trying to who cast it as like, well, hey, where Habib comes from, this is how they do it. You're not you're not helping as much as you think you are by trying to cast like everyone in Dagestan as if like well, hey, they can't be blamed for their super violence. It's just a part of their culture. Like, that is a super condescending way to approach it, too. Like, you're, you're, you're not being as nice a guy to them as you think you are. Some people don't play. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Some people don't play. Those people are still responsible for the consequences of their actions. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, Fedor versus Sonnen is October 13th. We're just about out of time here. We got, we got to wrap this thing up, but... Uh... Is this going to be on Paramount? Have, this is the, the poster is, that I'm looking on, at says it's on Paramount. It's on Paramount and and Days In. Okay, if you want to go to a, on a trip to the magical land of the zone, you can do that, uh, or you can apparently just watch it on your television. Do you have? Did you experience too much of an adrenaline dump to get up for Fedor versus Jail Sonnen? It does seem like kind of bad timing. Like we all just uh, UFC 229 all the way around uh, was weird, and the fights were wonderful. 
and the Malay was uh, interesting, to say the least. Memorable. So it does seem like running Fedor and Sonnen out there this Saturday night uh, is going to suffer a little bit from proximity. Uh, But at the same time, Bellator MMA Heavyweight World Grand Prix, Ben. Rolls on. I the steamroller like like rolls on. Breath. <sighs> okay. All right. So I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about that for the Breakfast of Champions. Yeah. It could be. I you mean, I'll, I'll be there. I mean, I'm not going to. You tell me Fedor versus Chael Sonnen. I'm going to like look at the calendar to make sure it's still 2018. I'm going to heave a sigh. But ultimately, I'm going to be there. Check in with us next next week. I assume that we will be talking about what happens during that fight, at least a little bit. Uh, who knows what'll happen? We may delve deeper into UFC 229, the comings and goings of uh, of the MMA world. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. But seriously, when you go jump on a bunch of people and you're doing kind of the death from above thing, is there a moment, do you think, when you're airborne where you're like, wait a minute, I should have maybe thought about the approach Maybe he's thinking, this is why they call me the Eagle. It is perfect for the Eagle. Soaring through the air. Talents out, feet first. Avoiding shattered ankles somehow. Do you think Dylan Danis was just still mad about the Sambo was easy to be called Jiu-Jitsu shirt? Yeah, that was what it was? I'm sure that was done. Is it still...